Hi, I'm Diora and this is Broccoli Book Club. Leading on from our last episode, which focused on Jonathan Safran Foer's Eating Animals, we wanted to carry on exploring the theme of animal rights by speaking to author and co-founder of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, also known as Peter, Ingrid Newkirk. She's been an activist for over 50 years and in that time has released over 20 books on animals. Ingrid co-founded Peter alongside Alex Pacheco in 1980. The non-profit charity has caused a lot of controversy over the years, especially for some of the tactics it's used to raise awareness around animal cruelty. And so it's fair to say that Peter is no stranger to critics and negative press attention. Ingrid's latest book, Animal Kind, published in 2020, acts as a resource that teaches us about the wonders of the animal kingdom. It also delves into the ways technology has evolved to find alternatives to animal products, shining a light on animal cruelty in the food, clothing and entertainment industries. Ingrid poses important questions about how alike humans and animals really are, by drawing evidence about their intelligence and capacity to show pain as well as emotions. This was a notion I wanted to explore further as it cropped up in our discussion on the Eating Animals episode. So, I was eager to speak to Ingrid about the book and what inspired her to write it. Plan was that if you had a neighbor who was doing something naughty to animals, you could actually copy that part of the book or that chapter and hand it to them. They didn't have to have the whole book. But yes, it's a personal resource to think, oh, I had no idea about that. I didn't know I could make a difference in this way and just be able to set out to do good things because you were now informed about who animals are. And Maya Bialik wrote this in your foreword. Animal Kind is a book that empowers readers with the knowledge to understand who animals are while dispelling the notion of what we assume animals are and the power to change the way the world treats them. Do you think that with more knowledge about the way animals are treated and abused around the world, people would change the ways they behave towards them? It's already happening, really. If you look at how many circuses, all of them basically, used to use wild animals. And zoos used to go to South America and Africa and all over the globe and round up animals without a thought that they had family or friends or interests or things to do. They were all ours for the taking. And so they were dragged back to whatever country and thrown into a circus or a zoo, kept abysmally. But since we have had Jacques Cousteau, Jane Goodall, National Geographic, we've seen who animals are. And we've come to know that their lives are important to them. They aren't just accessories to our lives. So, yes, it's already happening. The more we know, the more we'll change for the better. To counter that point just slightly, I feel like there is so much information out there nowadays already, which is really, really great. But do you think some people will also still actively choose to ignore it? And what do you make of those people? Oh, you know, some human beings are incorrigible <laughs> and they choose to ignore everything. I mean, look, we've got racial strife, we've got sexism, environmental degradation. 
And so for some people, they care about themselves. And that's as far as it goes. And what we are all saying, those of us in social movements, really is that compassion, understanding, respect is not something you meet out in little patches. It's an overall principle of how it would be lovely to conduct yourself through your life is being understanding, respectful, and kind, and not categorizing everybody and everything. And do you think that there are other ways, aside from knowledge, to get people thinking about animal welfare? Well, yes. In my own experience, it was personal interaction with animals. And I see this all the time with someone who thinks they don't like cats. And then, for example, somebody brings a cat into the home and they're smitten smitten with the kitten, and they suddenly start to really pay attention to what that little individual, that other form of life is doing, and it changes them. In another instance, we had a hunting father and son who were out on the ice skating off to hunt and came across a fawn who had fallen on the ice and with those hoofs, couldn't get traction to stand up and was just sprawled there. And they helped that deer get to a solid ground. And the son, who was about 25, said, I can't ever hunt again. I, I've never touched a deer. She was just like a big old dog. And it changed their lives. So personal experience and also YouTube, the internet, all those sorts of things are opening our eyes. Mm-hmm. Talking about the book, so the first half of Animal Kind covers nearly the entire animal kingdom. And then you delve into the way animals are treated and the food, clothing and entertainment industries. Were all of these things you knew before or was there any sort of new information that you learned when you were writing and researching this book? I did know a lot of it before because I collect information that's interesting about animals and that everyone might not have heard. It's my business to hear it. But yes, I did learn new things. I didn't know, for example, that reindeer change the color of their eyes in winter and summer. In summer, they're golden, in winter, they're blue. I didn't realize they manufacture their own vitamin D because of a lack of sunshine. And I didn't know, and I'm ashamed to say this, because I have squirrels I feed outside my window, that squirrels could rotate their little hands 180 degrees, which is why a cat will get stuck up a tree and you think, why don't they come down? It's storming, it's raining. They can't. They cannot come back down backwards. A squirrel can just rotate their paws and go easily back down the tree as if it's nothing. I learned so much. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. You're so passionate about animals. It definitely made me want to um, pick up an encyclopedia and just read a bit more. Because when I was younger, I definitely used to read facts about animals and pictures about them. But I do just feel like we are more and more distant from animals nowadays. I don't know if it's just because I've gotten older or if times have changed. What do you think of that? Well, it's true. I mean, pre-pandemic, I was on a plane, I would think every two days going somewhere. And you look out of the window, you look down, there's almost nothing of the natural world left in the part of the world we live in. 
it's all concrete and it's all shopping malls and housing and roadways and so on. Even the little patches of land that are left in which here it would be deer and raccoons and possums and field mice and badgers, who knows what, live, there's no peace for these animals. And studies show that they live in a constant state of stress because they never know when someone is around the next bush or coming into the field. There really is almost no natural world left for them in most of the world. Mm, I know, it's so sad, isn't it? And in fact, most animals now in the whole world are inside factory farms. It could be for clothing, but it's likely for meat. And most of the natural world forests are being cut down or burned so that we can grow crops to feed those animals who are constantly confined against their will. Yeah. Like I've also just recently read Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foa. And I just found it so shocking in a way that was different because I think I've seen all the documentaries on Netflix, but I think because they just can't show you some of the really cruel stuff on video. But having to read about it was just awful. It's completely changed my opinion on the food industry. I mean, I already had bad opinions about it, but I think it definitely strengthened my, I guess, determination to stop eating animal products. Good. That's wonderful. I take my hat off to Jonathan. You know, I've been in slaughterhouses. I try to keep the sad parts out of the book. I touch on it, but I don't want people to be miserable. But I've stood in slaughterhouses in Taiwan for dogs who are made into soup, uh, in many countries for horses, for chickens. And it's one thing, they all are so frightened. The fear is palpable, the stench that is so intense for them with their amazing sense of smell, of blood and guts and so on, and fear, adrenaline, is just overwhelming. And I do believe that almost everyone, unless they're psychotic, if they saw what we're talking about, that they could no more continue to pay for someone to do this to animals than fly to the moon. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned the different types of animals that are slaughtered all across the world. And I do find as well, there is that slight hypocrisy of people who will be horrified at the thought of a dog being killed for food, but not any other animals. And that's something you touch on, you know, in your book about the hierarchy of animals. Do you think having this sort of hierarchy within the animal kingdom is dangerous? Well, yes. And it's also been with human beings, hasn't it? I mean, we had Linnaeus, the first taxonomist, really, who did the great chain of being and he put God at the top and then the angels. I mean, this was supposed to be science. He put archbishops and leaders of the church next. And he just then dukes and duchesses and noblemen and so on. And just went down this list of where people stood in the hierarchy of life. And I mean, it's total rubbish. We're all in this together. It's a great orchestra of life. I think Roger Fouts said that, and I thought it was a lovely way to put it. Everyone plays their own instrument. Together, it's a great orchestra of life. It's tempting to dismiss those who you don't absolutely identify with. 
but we really shouldn't. Even when it's inconvenient, we should be at least considerate and know that everybody has a role to play. We don't know the intricacies, the interconnectedness of everything, but if someone values life, just life, then have some respect for all forms of it. I think I recently read a report which suggested that communities which are indigenous to different parts of the world are very in tune with their environment and that we should be kind of following them when we're thinking about sustainability and we're thinking about who do we look to to help us how to like navigate and live sustainably. They're very in tune with their environment and therefore they also use animal produce in a way that people would I guess say is mindful and is environmentally sustainable. What would you say to that? Well, there are tribal peoples, of course, as there are tribal animals, and they live within their environment in a respectful way. And there are carnivorous animals, and there are people who hunt to live and to sustain themselves. What I find curious is that we point to them as a justification for eating animals often. Not all of them do. There are many first peoples, Native Americans, for example, who grew corn and beans and squash, and that was the main part of their life. Why don't we point to them and say, aha, they could do it without hunting animals and hurting animals. That's who we should follow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so I just wanted to ask some questions sort of about you as well and your background. So how did you get into animal rights? Oh, just bad luck. <laughs> I could be at the beach with a pina colada right now, but no. Um, I have always cared about animals. I've always seen them as friends. And um, I grew up with a dog called Shawnee. He was there before I arrived. And we were like brother and sister. I slept in his dog basket. He slept on my bed. He would comfort me when I was sad and I would run and play with him. We were happy together. So I started with that. But my family, like most families at the time, had very compartmentalized thinking. I mean, some animals were to pet, some were to eat or to wear. Or, uh, we didn't think about their emotional lives. But I had a series of experiences. I became a law enforcement officer in Maryland. And I went to a farm where I found the people had moved away, abandoned all the animals. And there was a little pig who was the only farmed animal alive, busy dying. And I took him out to a water pump and held his head up, got him water and grunted. And I barreled him off to the veterinarian. Going home that night, I was thinking, I wonder what I have for dinner. And I thought, oh, yes, good. It was before microwave ovens. I've defrosted those pork chops. And then that light came on that I knew that I was going to charge these people with abandoning those animals, that pig. And yet I was paying somebody to do something. So a series of these bizarre little incidents, and each one woke me up slowly to some aspect. Seeing a fox and a squirrel caught in a steel trap, that woke me up to where my fur coat might have come from. I had my first fur when I was 19. And I thought, if I love animals, and it's taken me this long and these experiences to figure things out, 
maybe I'll start a little group and start letting people know what's going on, what I found, and then what alternatives there are to these things. And so that's how it happened. That's such an amazing story. And did you think when setting up Peter that it would have such a global impact? Did you envision it at all? No, not in the least. I just thought in our little community, I would write some things up, show some pictures and say, you know, could I help you as a kind person to another, make a few changes that might make a difference for these animals, would make a difference for these animals. But it struck a nerve. And you know, that very first case we had where we went into a laboratory and found these 17 macaque monkeys with their backs cut open. That was on the front page of the Washington Post because no one had ever busted a laboratory before. And people picked it up all over the world. And the most wonderful thing was that you know that in people's hearts, they had thought, I bet things in the laboratories are pretty sad, but they never thought they could do anything. And here we were taking the monkeys out of the lab, charging the experimenter with a crime of cruelty to animals, getting his grant funding cut off, that kind of thing. And so people started to write to us from internationally. We got bags, literally bags of posts saying, how can I help? And those are the most magical words in the world. Wow, that's so amazing and so encouraging. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is, and I'm sure you're extremely aware of this, but over the years, Peter has also had a lot of criticism about the way it displays some of its messaging. And there's so many people because of that want to dismantle the organization. What do you make of this criticism? And do you think there'll ever be a time when the support from the general public wanes because of some of these controversies? I've never heard any such thing. <laughs> no, um, I'm aware of it, of course. But I have a historical perspective. And I look at all the social movements going back in time, and our movement for the rights of animals is just one. And every single movement, I mean, you look at the suffragettes chaining themselves to the railings outside the Houses of Parliament and being force-fed the way ducks and geese are force-fed today and being derided. You look at women being told, you know, get back, stop that, dismantle your groups. You're only good for the kitchen and the bedroom. I don't pay any mind to any of this. And I do know that a lot of it originates with industry, is that the furries and the circus operators and the animal feed providers for labs and for farms, and all these people wish that we would go away. In fact, they wish someone would take us out in the back and shoot us. And then, <laughs> but we're not going away. And yes, you may not like something we do, maybe it threatens something you do, but that doesn't mean we can't say it, and it doesn't mean it isn't right. And so eventually this criticism is being whittled away and we're getting to the root of it, which is how do each of us treat other living beings with respect or not? And that's all we're asking for kindness. I also had some questions about things that you read and whether you actually even have time to read. Have there been any books that have shaped your journey in life, do you think? Any sort of standout books? Oh, there are many. There are actually many. 
it might surprise people to know the Gulag Archipelago. I read that in jail, actually, in Pennsylvania. I had run onto the field where they were shooting pigeons, captive pigeons. I went to jail for 15 days. I refused to pay bail. And in the prison library, they had the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And I read that and I thought, this is what people do to other people, which is not a novel thought. <laughs> but, you know, how could people be so ghastly to other people? And I think in prisons across the world, there are still people in other countries who are being held under despicable circumstances. And that made me think, you know, maybe it is hard to get people to open their hearts to animals, but it's also hard to open their hearts to human beings. So it's not just that animal rights has a hard road to hoe. It's that anybody working for justice does. But I think the key book that really changed my life was Animal Liberation by Peter Singer. It's called The Bible of the Animal Rights Movement. He's a philosopher in Australia, and he wrote this book. And for the first time in my life, I was about to get an award in Washington, D.C., for changing the dog pound from this horribly filthy place into a decent one. But I, I still ate animals and everything until I read that book. It quotes people from the past who were fighting against slavery, human slavery, and saying it's not the velocity of the skin, it's not the color of the skin, it's not how many legs you have. The question is, you know, not can they reason, not, it's can they suffer? And I thought, that is it. I, I believe in that. Nobody has articulated it or written it down for me before. And I realized that I did believe animals are not here for us to eat or wear, experiment on or use. They are other nations caught with us, you know, as they say, in the web of life and time. Definitely. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. Another question about reading. What are you reading currently? <laughs> I'm reading a book called Out of Sheer Rage. I started it and I thought, oh, I'll never read this. It's just not for me. But I read about 20 pages for some reason. I was, I think, waiting in a waiting room. And I became enamored of it. It's Jeffrey Dreyer. This will sound ridiculous. Anyone who hasn't read this, he will state something. And then he will reverse himself. And then he will state it in another way, and then he'll reverse himself. And I just became amused by it. And so that's what I'm reading now. Oh, lovely. Definitely we will have to look into that. Not necessarily. Look into one of the animal books. Okay. <laughs> Try the human nature of birds. That's a really good one. If you can find that, it will be used. But the human nature of birds is a fabulous book. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, so I'd love to also just get to know a little bit more about you. What do you do in your spare time when you're not thinking about <laughs> animals? Do you have any sorts of hobbies that might surprise people or just anything you do in your spare time? I probably do have something surprising because I don't garden. I don't sew. I don't cook. I'm no good at art whatsoever, but I love Formula One racing. <laughs> <laughs> That's so <laughs> random. Wow. <laughs> well, I've always loved it since I was a teenager. But I also have justified my love for Formula One racing 
by getting Michael Schumacher, bless his heart, poor man, but getting him to sign a, a petition to the German government against uh, monkey experiments at a university, and having foie gras taken out of the uh, donor and sponsor events on the track. Things like that. That's incredible. I did not expect that at all. And I love doing the cryptic crossword in The Guardian, which you can get free online. Oh, the cryptic ones, they're so hard. I find them so hard. Because I thought that, like, you have to be really clever to get them. And I just, I just oh, yes. never get them. Oh, um, you have to be very, very clever. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. And you know, here's a trick, is that there are so many compilers, and some are easier than others. So if you get stumped, go to the next day and try again and see if you are more in tune with that other compiler. Okay, thank you so much. That's um, good to know. So I was wondering, if you could go back and speak to a younger version of yourself, is there anything that you tell yourself? Oh, Lord, a lot of things. I tell myself when I was in that market in Kashmir not to buy the hat that I loved so much that was made out of a wild cat. I would have never bought that fur coat. And I would have liked to know that when you find a baby bird, which I used to find all the time for some reason when I was growing up, that they need more than an eyedropper full of milk. They need some professional care. And I would have told myself, don't eat animals, don't wear them, you know, leave them alone. They're your friends, not food, all sorts of things. Yeah, definitely. And I just have one final question. Do you have one writer, dead or alive, who you'd love to sit down with and pick their brain? Or you know what, it doesn't even have to be a writer, just anyone. It could be maybe an activist or someone who you really admire. Well, that's easy, actually because I have been arrested many times for animal rights activity, for civil disobedience, for, and have spent a number of days sometimes, sometimes a couple of weeks in prison. And it's never a pleasant experience. You always say to yourself, in my case anyway, you would say, well, it's nothing compared to what the animals go through, because it isn't, and that gets you through. But Martin Luther King, he wrote his letters from the Birmingham jail. And I have read those over and over again. And I, I try to imagine what it must have been like for him. I had certain advantages that he didn't have. And I had people on the outside who were more powerful, perhaps, than the people he had. Maybe not. But I would like to sit down with him and talk to him about strategy and about difficulties and how to overcome them. So, yeah, I would love to sit down with him. I want to say a huge thank you to Ingrid for coming on today's show. It was such a pleasure to speak to her. And thank you for listening to Broccoli Book Club. In next month's book club, we'll be discussing This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein. So get reading now and send in your thoughts and comments via voice note to voicenotes at broccolicontent.com. Don't forget to share the podcast and join the conversation using the hashtag Broccoli Book Club. And if you liked what you heard, why not subscribe and leave a review on your favourite podcast app? I've been your host, Diora, and you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at The Diora. Broccoli Book Club is produced by Jarja Mohammed, 
assistant produced by Rory Boyle, executive produced by Renee Richardson, and mixed by Rob Fincham. This is a Broccoli production.